Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yea, by your works are ye justified, toil unrelieved. Manifold labours, coordinate each to the sending achieved. Discipline, not of the feet but the soul, unremitting, unfeigned. Tortures unholy by flame, known, faced, and disdained. Courage that sons, only foolhardiness, even by these are ye worthy of your guns. Gilbert Frankow Hello and welcome to the When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One, episode 20.7, 1916. I hope you've been enjoying the World War One special, guys. It does feel like I've been doing this for a while now, and to be honest, it was never meant to stretch over two months like it has, but hey, that's okay really, so long as you guys enjoy it. With only three episodes left then, let's get down to it. I will now take you to the year 1916. With the ending of the autumn offences of 1915 came the real need within Allied command to effectively end the war in 1916. To do this, and to take the pressure off Russia, there was the sense within the Anglo-French camp that a major breakthrough was needed to break clean through the German lines and end the war. In the book War on the Western Front, Dr. Stephen Bull notes of the situation facing the Allies and Central Powers following the first full year of war in 1915. Quote, the end of 1915 marked a nadir in Allied fortunes. The Russians had been pushed back across their western province of Poland, and Anglo-French efforts on the western front had been thwarted. The Gallipoli adventure had proven to be just another blind alley, and unrestricted submarine warfare now appeared to offer Germany an escape from blockade and encirclement. While the Allies planned great efforts for 1916, involving both Britain and Italy on an increasing scale, the initiative lay with Germany. The German High Command, thus, faced serious strategic choices. End quote. Additionally for Germany was the question of Britain, mainly British commitment to the war, and the question, if France was defeated, would Britain remain at war with Germany? Britain was viewed as the reluctant partner, and with good reason. It was French soil that had been violated, French men had died in far greater numbers than the British, and France seemed in overall control of the strategic direction of the war in the Allied camp. Perhaps, if France was defeated, Chief of the German General Staff Falkenhayn mused, 
Britain would sue for peace before it could properly mobilise its population to the extent that France had done. There was the fear within German circles that Britain was a sort of sleeping giant in terms of its wartime contribution, because it could in theory contribute far more men than it was committing in 1915, as the drive for volunteers in Britain became more and more difficult. There was much expectation in both the French and German camps of what Britain would and could do in 1916, because a significant contribution in that year was expected to tip the balance. And much like the German attitudes towards America in 1918, it was hoped that France could be defeated before the full mobilisation or expected conscription of the British population was brought to bear. Martin Marix Evans, in his book Battles of World War I, notes on the situation. Quote, Eric von Falkenhayn, chief of the German general staff, knew that the French were more highly motivated than their allies. It was their soil that had been violated, their homeland that had been occupied. Further, the French had a great many more men under arms, and had suffered far greater losses than the British. Perhaps the war could be won before the British could build their strength, and before the troops now coming from the colonies and dominions of the British Empire could take the field. The destruction of the French army would knock England's best sword out of her hand. End quote. The decision to make a major attack against France in 1916 was made then on the back of this conclusion, and now the target had to be selected. One which, while not necessarily strategically important, would still suck in hundreds of thousands of French soldiers to their deaths, and cause enough suffering and loss within the country to cause French collapse. The term, Bleeding France White, began to circulate among German circles at this time, as Falkenhayn observed in a message to Ludendorff in January 1916. Advancing on Moscow takes us nowhere. Within our reach, beyond the French sector of the Western Front, there are objectives for the retention of which the French general staff would be compelled to throw in every man they have. If they do so, the forces of France will bleed to death. France as a nation will bleed white. This message to Ludendorff also reveals the state that German High Command believed Russia to be in in early 1916. It was expected that Russia would soon collapse due to revolution at home and in 1917 Germany would help this revolution on by importing a key revolutionary figure back into the country, as we'll see in the next episode. Though not actively involved in ensuring Russia collapsed domestically in 1916, short of increasing the military pressures on her in the east while Turkey battled her in the Caucasus, German officials genuinely expected a Russian request for peace within the few months, due to Russia's sorry state as a military power at the time. Verdun was selected as the target for the operation, which would drive France to ruin by her weight of losses, though the account Martin Marx Evans gives may surprise you. Quote, the target was selected with care. It had to be one which the French would give everything to defend. The huge forts above Verdun, a city of mythical importance to the French, were to be Falkenhayn's killing ground. General Joffrey was in fact willing to yield this ground. Strategically, it was of no importance to his campaign. Politically, and psychologically, however, the fortifications created after the humiliation of the Franco-Prussian War were of enormous symbolic significance, and the soldier was overruled by his political masters. End quote. This proves the naivety present in Falkenhayn's observations, though he would prove to be correct in his assumptions about Verdun and how the French, due to moral and psychological reasons, could not allow it to fall. As Dr. Stephen Bull notes, though, Falkenhayn had both overanalyzed the target and had overestimated Anglo-French abilities. Quote, Falkenhayn assumed, correctly, 
that the assault on one of France's most important fortresses would result in retaliation elsewhere, and his initial dispositions included reserves left in other sectors to deal with such responses. He was, however, incorrect in thinking that the Allies would be able to mount major operations immediately, and totally in error if he thought that these events would revive a war of movement, as he is said to have opined to General von Kuhl. He was also unrealistic in his chauvinistic assumptions that the French would suffer five casualties for every two German. End quote. By virtue of necessity more than anything else, I feel I should be pulling in a good few sources on the subject of the 1916 offensives, so apologies if it breaks up the narrative a little, but at least you know I'm not making it all up, right? John Mann, author of the Reader's Digest book on World War I entitled The Eventful 20th Century, The War to End All Wars, 1914-1918, notes on the situation of 1916 also. Quote, During 1915, the war became truly global. But in 1916, attention returned again to the Western Front, for the increase in munitions and manpower there raised hopes of breaking the deadlock in trench warfare. 38 new British divisions increased the total number for the Allies on the Western Front to 139, against the Germans 117. For the first time too, the Allies, Britain, France, Italy, Belgium and Russia, planned to coordinate their attacks with a general assault in summer of 1916. On the Western Front, the attack would fall on the Somme. End quote. However, as John Mann continues, the tactical deficiencies of the Allies in coordination and joint strategy over the West, East, Alps, and Mesopotamian fronts meant that the Western Front remained in a state of delay and apprehension when attacks were concerned. Quote, they were too slow. Germany moved first. Falkenhayn believed that Britain was the real problem because the country could blockade Germany into starvation while remaining safe beyond the Channel. The way to attack Britain was to knock out France, bleed France dry, he argued to his colleagues, and victory would follow. The strategy should not be mass assault, but an attack at a single point so critical that France would have to respond with everything she had. That point, he said, was redone. End quote. John Mann's extract reveals that the common consensus about the Somme, i.e. that it was an offensive forced upon Britain by the French, is an altogether false one. An offensive in the Somme region had been planned as early as February 1916, and it just so happened that the Germans pulled enough French away from the region that the offensive in the Somme became a primarily British venture. As we'll see, the French did encourage the Somme to take place during the heaviest months of fighting, from about April to late July of 1916, at Verdun, and the commander of the British Expeditionary Force, Sir Douglas Haig, since December 1915, was in many ways pressured into the offensive against his better judgement, while also realising that a major British effort was needed against the Germans to prove to the French that Britain was in fact thoroughly committed to the war, and it would pull its weight and suffer just as much if need be. This collective decision by the Allies would lead to the costliest battle in military history, the Somme, in which over 1.2 million casualties would result, and in which British deaths would reach 19,000 on the first day alone. It was in many ways the day of reckoning for those British and Commonwealth conscripts and volunteers who had been brought to the continent as part of Kitchener's army, and who would earn the respect of their French comrades the same way everything else was earned in World War I through needless losses and months of suffering. With the fear of a two-front war in Germany, and the effects of a long-drawn-out war being felt in Britain, both took equal opportunities to strike at each other's weak spots. 
For Britain, what this actually meant was targeting the German ally in the Ottomans and their sensitive Middle Eastern provinces, where Arab nationalists dreamt of independence. For Germany, this meant encouraging the rising of Britain's most sensitive region, Ireland. It goes without saying that the Irish crisis facing the British is of special interest to me. For those of you that don't know, and it's not like you ought to since it's not like I actively advertise it, I am Irish. Ireland is not part of Britain today. Although Ireland today is split between the South, which contains the provinces of Leinster, Munster and Connacht, which in total comprises 26 counties, also known as the Republic of Ireland to the international community, and the North, usually simply termed as the province of Ulster, but actually containing six counties of Fermanagh, Antrim, Down, Tyrone, Armagh and Derry. The reasons why Northern Ireland exists as a province separate from the Southern Republic will be covered in a future episode, so don't worry too much about the details for the moment. But there are a few terms you should familiarise yourself with if you have any idea of what's going on in Ireland at this time. A nationalist wanted Ireland to acquire for itself a measured form of independence. How much independence varied from county to household to individual, while a unionist wished to maintain the status quo of Ireland as a home island, directly governed from Westminster as it had been since 1800. Home rule was the idea put forward by those Irish nationalists in Westminster that detailed the devolution of power from Britain to a Dublin parliament, which, though granting Irishmen control over local affairs, would still see Ireland remain a part of the UK. However, the fears of the Ulster Unionists, those ancestors of the Protestant Scots and English who had colonised Ulster in the early 17th century, and many other Protestant Irish who did not share the nationalist views of the Catholic Irish nationalists or Protestant nationalists, were that in this new Catholic-dominated Dublin Parliament, they would be ostracised and put in real danger. The Ulster Volunteer Force, or UVF, was established in January 1913 to oppose Home Rule, while the Irish Volunteers were established in December of that year in response. The existence of both seemed to threaten civil war in 1913 and 1914, while World War threatened to erupt in Europe. A sort of system of understanding emerged between the in-power Conservative Party and the out-of-power Irish Nationalist or Home Rule Party, whereby the Irish Home Rule Party would support the Westminster government by all means at its disposal, even while in opposition, in return for that government's promise to pass the Home Rule Bill. The situation was made even more delicate, though, by the very nature of the Conservative Party, who, as Conservatives, did not wish to see the loss of British power in Ireland, and, due to the party's consistency of many Unionists, or at least Unionist sympathisers, feared handing Ireland a Parliament which was expected to be dominated by a Catholic-Irish influence. Yet the ailing Conservative Party required the Nationalist support, so it planned for the bill to be passed in 1913. Its passing was blocked, but by virtue of British law it would be passed by default in late 1914. The only problem for this default passing of the bill was the complications that would surely ensue and the need to pacify the various armed elements of both sides who threatened to plunge the island, or perhaps islands, into civil war. Britain would have to focus its full attention on the issue. Then World War came, and Ireland's troubles were put on the back burner. This was the first step towards the redefining of Irish history. The next step would come in Easter 1916. There was a surprising surge for Irish enlistment during World War I. The Irish Nationals joined up in huge numbers once the violation of Belgian neutrality became world news, 
and plucky little Belgium became the victim that would rouse Irish men, nationalist and unionist, towards the recruiting office and into Europe just in time, as many believed in Britain, to avoid the potential civil war that would have burst out from the Home Rule Bill. James Lydon, in his book The Making of Ireland from Ancient Times to the Present, notes of the situation, quote, In the autumn of 1914, then, before the royal assent was given to the Home Rule legislation, the militarisation of Ireland by groups who are politically opposed created a situation in which civil war was nearly inevitable. Home rule would be forcibly resisted by the UVF, who would defend a new Ulster as part of the UK. Conservative support for the Unionists was so strong in Britain that English involvement in an armed struggle in Ireland could not be ruled out. End quote. In the background to all these details was the secret organisation known as the IRB, or Irish Republican Brotherhood, forerunner of the IRA, or Irish Republican Army, and all of its spin-offs. The IRB contained many influential Irishmen who wished to acquire Irish independence by military means, and to achieve independence not in the form of home rule within the UK, but in the form of full sovereignty. The IRB was thus a major element of Irish nationalism in its militaristic form, while another wing of Irish nationalism, in the form of the Irish Citizens Army led by James Connolly, was heavily influenced by the class equality teachings of Marx and the nationalist, republican ideologies of the IRB alike. Dermot Ferreter, one of Ireland's foremost historians on Irish history and lecturer at UCD where I attend, notes in his book The Transformation of Ireland 1900-2000 on the situation. Quote, the IRB had fewer than 2,000 members, but harboured a youthful wing that was pleased to imitate Ulster militarisation in infiltrating the Provisional Committee of the Irish Volunteers, or IVF. Certain respectable members of the IRB may have been uneasy but James Connolly's Irish Citizens Army, a small group established to protect the interests of Dublin's working class after the very publicised lockout of 1913, needed a new agenda, with James Connolly seeing the Socialist Republic as facilitating the rise of the working class underdog. Connolly thus took a more assertive leadership role in 1914, reorganising the ICA, adopting a constitution and appointing an army council. One of the main concerns of the Irish Republican Brotherhood was that Connolly would attempt to instigate his own Irish Citizens' Army rising, but he was eventually persuaded to work in conjunction with the Irish Republican Brotherhood. End quote. The different organisations in the Irish Volunteers, the ICA and the IRB actually do a good job of reflecting the difference in opinion present in Ireland around this time regarding independence. Indeed, even though a narrative on Irish history of this period would focus on their actions, as a percentage of the Irish population as a whole, they made up a very small minority, even collectively, and we shouldn't be blinded by the pure facts that the average Irish county or Belfast citizen or rural farmer cared little about political ventures, and were mobilised instead by news of Belgium and the need to come to her defence, while additional concerns for the day-to-day -day maintenance of their lives rose above the grand romantic ideals that the various factions of Ireland tended to profligate. The lack of interest in what the UVF or the IVF was doing is juxtaposed by their concern for their relatives who were fighting in mainland Europe. Ferreter explains the atmosphere that the rising, planned by hardline nationalists, broke onto, and the challenges it faced as a result. Quote, Cabals and further cabals abounded during this period, involving much deception, but also a divergence of views on what justified a rebellion, 
or indeed how respectable a rebellion would be. This was particularly important given that a general revolutionary situation did not remotely exist in Ireland in the years immediately preceding 1916. It was also the case that relative government tolerance meant that those who wished to indulge in martial fervour could do so relatively unfettered. In the absence of conscription, there was a notable lack of a framework of oppression that could be manipulated. In a class-conscious Dublin city, which had provided 18,698 war recruits for the British Army, some undoubtedly found the drilling of volunteers embarrassing and irrelevant. End quote. The problem for the British was not the fact that the Rising mobilised the Irish public into suddenly becoming this nationalist nation, but that the British themselves dealt with the Rising so badly by making martyrs out of the participants that they created the grounds which were ripe for nationalist exploitation. This set the foundations for the next decade, and those individuals who had initially been spat upon by the Dublin populace for their instigation of the Rising, while most had brothers, fathers or sons in Flanders, were thereafter embraced as heroes who died for a cause they believed in and whose symbolic act of sacrifice should be replicated. It's a turn of events little understood even around the world today, since most simply assume that Ireland as a whole supported the rising against an oppressive British rule. However, the British rule was not overtly oppressive, for means of Britain's own practical security than anything else, and the rebels' attempts to utilise German help for the rising cast them in a traitorous light and portrayed them, in the minds of the average citizen, as a rebellious minority out of touch with the wishes of the majority, whose main interest was to see their relatives return safely home. The real issue here was the promise of German aid, though, and this is where the diplomacy gets juicy. The plan had been a three-pronged assault on both Britain and Ireland, as 40,000 German soldiers would be landed in the south of Ireland, some marines would blockade London, and a Zeppelin attack would bombard London City itself. While that diversionary attack on London was going on, the Nationals and Republicans would rise up, defeat the Unionist forces in the north of the country and seize Dublin, while also utilising the help of their German friends who were on hand to hold off against British reinforcements. In short, the plan would have opened a new front on Britain's doorstep, and would have provided an obvious distraction to what was supposed to be a relatively safe zone in the home islands. But the plan was fundamentally flawed, because it assumed that 1. German soldiers would be able to be transported across the channel, and that the Germans could spare the 40,000 men who may be impossible to resupply, and 2. that Ireland would aid them in their venture. Previous attempts by the Germans to recruit into their army Irish nationals from prisoner of war camps had proved ineffectual, and went against the argument of Sir Roger Casement, the Irish nationalist who had attempted to recruit German support, that Ireland was ready and willing to welcome and aid German soldiers. Thus the whole thing collapsed, and what resulted was not really a military takeover of a thankful nation, but a blood sacrifice of a few hundred men, who were successful only because of the British mismanagement. Britain was far too preoccupied with grand strategic manoeuvres on the continent to worry about Ireland existing as a hostile republic on its flank, and thus put down the rising with far less tact than wisdom would have recommended. The result was that three years later a very real war would erupt within Ireland, only this time those involved did not intend to die in a blood sacrifice, they intended to win independence for Ireland as a whole. Britain was perfectly capable in attempting to oversee the internal disruption within its enemies' lands, however. 
Austria-Hungary was at this time locked securely in a deadly game of attrition high up in the Alps against Italy, and could thus afford to spare few men, when the news came that Romania had been coaxed into the war on the side of the Allies. With the heating up of the Western Front in the Battle of the Somme and Verdun, much pressure was put on Italy to pull its weight in its own form of offensives. These took place high up in the Alps, in places where one would think it impossible to wage effective warfare, but which the Italians did anyway, in their endless series of battles against the Austrians, which began in June 1915 and didn't officially end until late 1918. John Mann notes of the situation, quote, Supposedly the back door into Germany, Italy was in fact locked tight by mountains held by the Austrians. Most of the fighting took place in or around a bubble of Italian territory, whose boundaries ran along the eastern edges of the Alps and then cut across a coastal plain to the Adriatic, following the course of the River Isonzo. The Isonzo was the front line. For the Italians, Trieste, which lay 32 kilometers beyond it, was the lure. End quote. The best way to imagine the Italian front into the Alps is of course with a mind map. So imagine a rectangle with the bottom of that rectangle attached into the Italian country itself and constituting the Italian fallback line. This means that the other three sides were hosting scenes not dissimilar to the trenches seen on the Western Front, albeit covered in snow and 6,000 kilometers above sea level. Men also dug holes into the mountains for a better tactical edge and in scenes that would make me cringe and recoil in horror, many slept only a few feet away from their enemy on the other side of a sheer mountain face, where a single slip would mean falling to your death, or where simply rolling over the wrong way in your sleep would see you plunge to your doom. The enemy would have been the last of my worries, and for the soldiers themselves, fighting high above their homelands and worthless territory, the whole thing would have seemed fruitless even though the outcome of the battles in the Alps would determine both the Austrian and Italian futures in the war. Imagine the war in the Alps ongoing, while Germany launches itself at France in Verdun, and while Britain launches itself at Germany in the Somme, and you'll have a good idea of why it's so hard to cover everything at once. It's a wonder that the Allies were able to effectively coordinate their overall strategies. What's that? They weren't able to? An often forgotten front of World War I was the front that really started the whole thing, the Balkans. Last time we covered the collapse of Serbia and what it meant for Serbian nationalism and pride, but I also briefly mentioned the downfall of Montenegro, Serbia's ally, in a time when being Serbia's ally was catastrophic to one's health. Montenegro collapsed under the weight of central power invasion in early 1916 but the Allies were able to stabilise the so-called Salonican Front, which stretched all across the borders of a supposedly neutral Greece, as well as into the east coast of the Balkans and west coast of the Adriatic, giving the Allies enough room to effectively supply themselves and remain a thorn in the side of the Austro-Bulgarian. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Bulgarian planners, who wished to divide up the Balkans between themselves. The Allies achieved a huge coup when Romania declared war on Austria in August, and encouraged the Allies while a major Bulgarian-German offensive was launched against the Allied Salonican Front in mid-September. Once the offensive was halted by the heavily dug-in and well-prepared Allies, they launched a counter-attack, coinciding with an attack launched by the Romanians, which seemed to draw the noose tighter around the central powers in the Balkans. There was still the critical question of Greece and its internal division when it came to the issue of who it would declare for in the event of war, but Romania's contribution, while it lasted, was something of a godsend for the Allies in the hard-pressed Balkan theatre, and for a time, it almost seemed as though Austria and Bulgaria could be met with equal force and Serbia restored. But John Mann explains how the initially successful Romanian offensive ground to a halt. Quote, in August 1916, Romania declared war on Austria, with the consequence that Germany, Turkey and Bulgaria became enemies as well. Exhilaration was rapidly followed by disaster and near extinction. Having doubled the size of its army, Romania's position seemed strong, but its troops were poorly armed, with few machine guns, little artillery and virtually no planes. The capital, Bucharest, was almost within reach of Bulgarian guns. In late August, Romanian forces struck west into Transylvania. Almost at once, the Romanians found themselves under attack from Bulgaria in the south and an Austro-German army in the north. The French and British tried to ease the pressure on their Romanian ally by launching another assault on the Somme, but it did the Romanians no good. End quote. Once again, one can see the overlapping of the grand strategy of the Allies and their failure to properly coordinate attacks. Imagine the results of an offensive which attacked simultaneously along the Somme, a counter-attack in Verdun, an Italian attack across the Alps, an Allied attack across the Salonican Front, a Romanian advance into Austria, and a Russian attack directed towards both Austria and Germany. The problem was the immense deficiencies within the material and strategic capabilities of the Allies. Just as sure as Gallipoli had been a campaign made impossible from the get-go due to the poor planning and overall mismanagement, so too were the Allies incapable of meeting together and organising themselves properly. The result was that each attacked when they could, and the Central Powers were pulled in a load of different directions in intervals, but it wasn't until 1918, when the Allies were able to properly organise a joint military strategy, that the Central Powers fell apart. The Allies were simply too weak and poorly equipped and supplied to effectively fight a joint overall campaign, and as a result of this its Balkan allies, Serbia, Montenegro, Romania and Russia, 
would all fall in their isolation to the force of the Central Powers. While the summer of 1916 was one of severe bloodletting on both sides of the Western Front, it also represented the last offensive conducted by Imperial Russia in its history, and for that reason it is pretty significant. It is also significant for its knock-on effects, and for the sheer surprise and shock value it instilled in the Central Powers. The Brusilov Offensive, named after Alexei Brusilov, a 55-year-old veteran of the Russo-Turk War of 1877, also represented the potential Russia had always had as a difference maker in the war, but due to her lack of leadership, logistical problems and strategic deficiencies, her raw power was wasted in the hands of a supreme commander, Tsar Nicholas II, who had no idea of how to effectively wage war against an organised, albeit stretched, Austro-German front. The Brusilov Offensive, launched on June 4, 1916, was meant to help Italian forces by pinning down the bulk of Austria, but what it really did was pull Austro-German attention back towards Russia during the crucial time of the Somme and Verdun battles when Germany could ill afford to spare men for an endless Russian line. John Mann sets the scene. Quote, With four armies numbering 38 divisions on 158,000 troops, Brusilov controlled 200 miles between the Dniester River in the south and the marshes formed by the Pripet River in the north. While the northern flank prepared for action, he, supposedly, was on the defensive. Yet he knew that the Austrians would be not expecting an offensive. Carefully scattering concentrations of troops in order not to give the game away, he gambled on surprise and won." End quote. This apparently revived Russian army met an Austrian force which contained the softest of Austria's soldiers. The sick, the short, the less experienced men were positioned on what was expected to be a quiet front while their countrymen tore it up in the Alps against the Italians. Brusilov's offensive thus made almost instant gains, as John Mann continues, quote, On June 4th, what seemed nothing more than a reconnaissance mission towards the town of Lutsk met with little resistance. Then, a 2,000-gun barrage blasted 50 breaches in the Austrian lines, through which the Russian troops poured. Lusk fell, and the Russians rolled on towards the mountain barrier of the Carpathians 300 kilometres ahead. Prisoners were rounded up, 26,000 in the first 24 hours, 200,000 in two weeks, 375,000 in two months. Brusilov's offensive echoed across the European war zone. In the short term, it gave Russia command again of the western Ukraine and northeastern corner of Austria-Hungary. It forced Falkenhayn to send help from the west, ruining his plans to hit back on the Somme. It encouraged Falkenhayn to get Hotzendorf fired, but it also fatally undermined Falkenhayn himself in his simmering dispute with Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Finally, it persuaded Romania to enter the war on the Allied side. End quote. The Brusilov Offensive in June to August of 1916 represented only the second time that the feared German two-front war against the Russo-French alliance manifested itself practically in the war, as German divisions were pulled east from west again, just as they had been when the Battle of the Marne was entering its critical days in August of 1914. But it represented the last time Russia would be able to do something like this in the war. From August 1916 onwards, the Allies were very much alone in the west as the Russian front collapsed under its own weight, a situation we'll cover in episode 20.8 next time. Even while the Brusilov Offensive waged throughout the summer of 1916, the German High Command debated whether a measured peace with a disadvantaged Russia would be Germany's best option, 
with the socialists in Germany for this proposal, along with Falkenhayn, and with Ludendorff and Hindenburg arguing for a total Russian defeat, hence the disagreements within the German camp. By September 1916, the Brusilov Offensive finally ran out of steam, by then costing the Austro-German camp 600,000 casualties, including 400,000 prisoners, the largest prisoner grab of any offensive in the war. However, the losses for Russia exceeded one million men, and merely contributed to further sap the morale of the soldiers fighting along the front, and of the average citizen tending the fields at home. The ensuing months are ones of chaos for the 200-year-old Russian Empire, and by March 1917, the Tsar would admit his failure to run his own state and abdicate it to a provisional government which, crucially for the plans of a certain Vladimir Lenin hiding out in Germany, make the unpopular decision to continue the war. We must venture back to the Somme now, after that roundabout tour of the other events in 1916. The easiest way to imagine the Somme offensive is by mind-mapping the area. So picture a straight vertical line in your head, then imagine that about three quarters of the way down that line, another line cuts horizontally across it. That line that cuts horizontally through the vertical line is the River Somme, and that's about as complicated as this campaign gets. South of that river, along the quarter of ground contained the French offensive, while north of the river, along the remaining three quarters, stretched the British and Commonwealth offensive. Overall, among the British strategists, the goal was to break a hole in the German lines, where cavalry could pour through and surround the enemy from behind. A reasonable strategy, and one which had been used, at least in terms of the cavalry, many times before. But the British underestimated the strength and complexity of the German trenches, which, when you think about it, was quite ridiculous. These trenches were, after all, meant to be built with a kind of permanence that would allow German soldiers to be sparsely placed along them in order to save on manpower that could be used elsewhere, because that's what the Germans were all about, saving wherever possible. It meant that they could launch huge offensives, like Verdun in the south, while still apparently holding security to the Somme and Flander fronts in the north. Sir Douglas Haig, our man in the front lines since the war had begun, was now commander of the BEF, and as John Mann explains, he had grand plans for the British offensive. Quote, Haig's plan relied on a massive artillery barrage to break the enemy's spirit and to plough up the barbed wire, the trenches and the machine gun posts. For this, he had some 1,500 guns, of which 467 were heavy ones, a gun for every 60 feet of front. The second vital element, surprise, was never a possibility, for the preparations were obvious to the Germans since February. The British plan was further compromised by a divergence of opinion in British high command. Haig wanted a breakthrough, while others believed only limited advances were possible. Both tactics were trapped in the paradox of trench warfare. Only a long bombardment would break through the enemy lines, but the longer the bombardment, the greater the resources required, and the longer the Germans would have to prepare their rear defences. The sheer devastation that would follow the Somme in terms of lives lost was felt so deeply in Britain because of the way in which the British units were divided. Men from villages and towns were placed in the same regiment or battalion, and often had their units named after their place of origin. In theory, this meant that one was more likely to cooperate with their fellow soldier if they knew them well, or knew their sister well, or if both shared the same accent, or if both had gone to school together. It was a solid theory, proven throughout history, that soldiers are more likely to care for the man they know rather than the man they don't. 
but what wasn't anticipated was the impact left on these villages or towns that the men had originated from when all these men returned as wounded or psychologically damaged or didn't return at all. It meant that a scar was left on small towns and villages dotted throughout the British countryside where sometimes upwards of 80% of the male populations in them had become casualties of war, changing the mood and structure of the area, and by extension those areas around it, for a long, long time. Martin Marex Evans explains the scene. Quote, the hasty enlistment of so large a number produced strong regional characteristics in the bodies of men recruited. Whole battalions were made up of men from a single town. Indeed, the objective of the recruitment drive became the formation of such groups, the Grimsby Pals and the Manchester Pals, for example. They were no instant army, but by the spring of 1916, General Haig had a growing army of new, unproven, but eager and dedicated troops with which to enforce his more experienced army in France. End quote. When the men went over the top in the early morning of July 1st, 1916, it immediately became apparent that something was very, very wrong. The Germans had not been wiped out, as the soldiers had been told, and the previous week-long bombardment that had started on June 24th had not enabled the Allies to simply stroll across no-man's land and re-inhabit the former German trenches. On the contrary, the German soldiers emerged once the bombardment had ended for the first time, confident that the predictable course would be taken of bombard and attack that had been seen so many times before. Like a horribly realistic movie everyone had seen before, the Germans knew what the British and Commonwealth and French were about to do once the bombardment ended and they assumed their positions. Martin Evans explains why the bombardment did not have the effect that the Allies on the Western Front desired. Quote, Both sides were concentrating on the battles on other fronts, so life was relatively quiet on the Somme, and the Germans used the time well. The western edge of the ridge became the first line of defence, its projecting spurs fortified to cover the little valleys and the trenches sighted to provide the best fields of fire. Behind this, two more lines of trenches were constructed, and key villages turned into strong points connected by a network of communication trenches. The ground was painstakingly analysed to give their artillery the precise range of the probable routes of an attacking force. Most important of all were the deep bunkers the Germans excavated in the chalk behind their surface fortifications all along the line. Here, they could survive the inevitable bombardment that would precede an Allied attack. End quote. I don't like to rely too heavily on secondary sources, so I do feel that citing some accounts of those men who fought on the day is something of a necessity. A private Fred Ball of the King's Liverpool Regiment recorded the following scene. The fury of our barrage dropped like a wall of roaring sound before us. By some means, the signal to advance was given and understood, and we found ourselves advancing into the mist, feeling utterly naked. Who can express the sensations of men, brought up in trench warfare, suddenly divested of every scrap of shelter? So great was the noise that the order to keep in touch with one another was passed only by shouting our hardest, and our voices sounded like flutes in a vast orchestra of terrible sound. All at once I became conscious of another sound, a noise like the crisp crackle of twigs and branches burning in a bonfire just beyond my vision in the mist. This made me think I must be approaching some burning building. I realised, when my neighbour on my right dropped with a bullet in the abdomen, that the noise was rifle and machine gun fire and felt the tiniest bit happier when I touched my entrenching tool, which, contrary to regulations, was attached to the front of my equipment instead of the side.
The Somme Offensive lasted until November 1916, and by that stage both the Anglo-French and German camps were beyond exhaustion. Both sides had lost over a million casualties, and though the battles of the Somme and Verdun ended in a British Peric and French psychological victory respectively, and although they were seen as the moment when Britain's untested divisions really grew up and did what they had originally signed up to do in 1914, or as the moment when France's scramble to save its honour had turned into a flood of patriotism and newfound determination to stop Germany, the back of the Allied armies had been smashed, replaced with a cynical, exhausted and stone-faced soldier who saw no end of the war in sight. Every soldier experienced 1916 differently. For the Ottomans, 1916 had been a year of controversy, as the campaign in the Caucasus had led to a period of intense persecution of the Armenian populace, whereupon over 750,000 would die from exposure and disease in a forced march that still causes controversy between Turkey and Armenia today. Italy and Austria spent 1916 at each other's throats high up in the Alps, while the Balkans had given host to the most unusual ad hoc front of the war, the Salonican Front, which oversaw the defence of the Allies' Balkan interests. Romania and Bulgaria were duking it out, with Romania under heavy central power pressure, owing to Russia's severe weaknesses. Much concern surrounded Russia in the Allied camp in late 1916. Could she be relied upon to hold the Germans in the east any longer? Much depended upon her ability to suck in as many Germans as possible, a purpose she had performed in brilliantly in the Brusilov Offensive in the summer of 1916, just as Germany was simultaneously attacking and defending in the west. Additionally, there were the newer concerns of powerful neutrals such as the United States, who now seemed to be veering closer towards the Allied camp than ever before, and the issue of the home front, where supply problems and the need for factory workers contributed to a critical food shortage in Russia, which would bring the Russian Empire to its knees. In Germany, the British blockade was beginning to hurt her more notably, as rationing was implemented in late 1916, just as it was announced, Germany intended to establish an independent Polish state. This move was intended to encourage Poles to desert Russia and join the Germans, but it met with limited success. Another event in 1916 saw the First Sea Battle of 1916, the Battle of Jutland, take place. In many ways it was a draw, because after it nothing changed, though the Germans, having lost less ships than the British, could claim a victory. However, the British, their blockade of Germany now easier to enforce, could also claim victory, so everyone wins. Everybody, that is, except for the German civilian, who depended on the food, brought in through the now-blocked ports. In total, at least 750,000 Germans would die of starvation as a direct result of the British blockade from 1914 to 18, and Germany's failure to relieve it by either submarine or American appeal, which we'll see more of in the next episode, was a key factor in the revolutions of early autumn 1918 that compounded the end of World War I for Germany. For the two protagonists that will play a central role in the next episode, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, it was this blockade that they feared the most, and upon their acquisition of Falkenhayn's position, following his failure in the Kaiser's eyes after the Bruce Love Offensive in summer of 1916, the Hindenburg-Ludendorff partnership led the country through its toughest challenges, while also coming closer than Germany would ever get to victory, and scaring the living daylights out of the Allies in the process. December 1916 was a notable time for both camps. After ten months of battering themselves against the walls of Verdun to no avail, and after holding the fort in the Somme, the Germans had suffered horrendous losses, 
over 3 million casualties, with just over 1.7 million dead. The Russians, though they were in the ropes again, had proven their tenacity at the most inopportune time for the Austro-German alliance, causing the latter a great deal in their grand strategic planning, and resulting in the firing of Falkenhayn from his position as Chief of German High Command. For Austria, the losses of 1916 had been the worst yet, as the Italian campaigns and the Bruselov offensive had collectively cost them over a million casualties, with their reservists in the Alps allowing the Austrians to hold on with their fingertips. Italy, in her first major tests, had proven that the romantic ideals surrounding Italian destiny and irredentist dreams could be and would be blocked by a wall of Austrian resistance high up in the Alps, meaning that more work and heavier sacrifices would have to be made. It was also the end of illusion for Italy in diplomatic terms, as Germany declared war on her in August 1916, once it became obvious to all that the Italian hope of isolating the war as a conflict between herself and Austria was unrealistic. Britain had earned its stripes on the Western Front, and could no longer be accused of half-hearted commitment by their French allies. The Somme had crystallised the British commitment towards total war against Germany, while her severe loss of life in those battles liquidated the German hope that Britain would fold if France folded first. France had survived 1916 by holding Germany at bay, in theory falling for the trap set at Verdun by pouring troops into the defence, but in practice proving to Germany that she could not bleed France white in 1916 or any other year. Frenchmen were proud of their defence, and subsequent victory in their pushback of the German forces by November 1916, and this provided a terrific morale boost and a good source of propaganda. The Ottomans were stretched as thinly as Austria, but the addition of Bulgarian aid seemed to promise that the established Salonican front would fall, despite the addition of Romania to the Allies' side. Russians fought Ottomans in the Caucasus, and in the process lost the strength to fight effectively on the Eastern Front much like the Austrian distraction in the Alps diluted their strength. The Caucasus played host to the Armenian tragedy, which we really will have to cover in more detail with Sean because it's so important. However, I will cover some of the detail now. The Armenian Genocide, also called the Armenian Massacres or the Great Crime, is the second most studied case of genocide in history, after the Holocaust and the word genocide was first coined after its events to describe the awful nature of the Ottoman treatment of Armenian men, women and children during their forced march, deportation and straight-up mass murder of so many ethnic Armenians beginning on April 24, 1915. The law which was passed within the Ottoman Empire, known as the Temporary Law of Deportation or Tehir Law on May 29, 1915, removed much of the rights of the Armenian victims who were caught between the two sides of the Caucasus front. Those that protested within Turkey at this decision, such as parliamentary rep Ahmed Riza, appealed for the halting of such extraordinarily barbaric measures against the Armenian populace. He noted, It is unlawful to designate the Armenian assets as abandoned goods, for the Armenians, the proprietors, did not abandon their properties voluntarily, they were forcibly, compulsively removed from their persons and exiled. Now the government, through its efforts, is selling their goods. If we are a constitutional regime functioning in accordance with international law, we cannot do this. This is atrocious. Grab my arm, eject me from my village, then sell my goods and properties. Such a thing can never be permissible. Neither the conscience of the Ottomans, nor the law, can allow it. The New York Times reported daily on the massacres, and went a good way in persuading Americans that of the barbaric and awful nature of the central powers in the process. 
The issue, dated August 8th, 1916, read... Naturally, the death rate from starvation and sickness is very high, and has increased by the brutal treatment of the authorities, whose bearing toward the exiles as they are being driven back and forth over the desert is not unlike that of slave drivers. With few exceptions, no shelter of any kind is provided, and the people coming from a cold climate are left under the scorching desert sun without food and water. Temporary relief can only be obtained by the few able-to-pay officials. Additional evidence is now available, which condemns the Germans for their inaction as much as the Ottomans for their action. As Major General Otto von Lasso, acting military attaché and head of the German military plenipotentiary in the Ottoman Empire, spoke of Ottoman intentions in a conference held in Batum in 1918. The Turks have embarked upon the total extermination of the Armenians in Transcaucasia. The aim of Turkish policy is, as I have reiterated, the taking of possession of Armenian districts and the extermination of the Armenians. The Turk government wants to destroy all Armenians, not just in Turkey, but also outside Turkey. On the basis of all the reports and news coming to me here in Tiflis, there can hardly be any doubt that the Turks are systematically aiming at the extermination of the few hundred thousand Armenians whom they have left alive until now. Total War was the only way to describe the war that had begun as a Balkan quarrel in the midsummer of 1914. As both sides viewed the results of a second full year of war, the average soldier struggled to make sense of the losses incurred for so little gain, while those in high command planned further offensives, this time guaranteed to win the war, while simultaneously avoiding the subject of catastrophic losses that their failure to properly prepare for would inevitably create. Summing it up brilliantly is historian Samuel Hines in his book A War Imagined, The First World War and English Culture, in which he notes, quote, a generation of innocent young men, their heads full of high abstractions like honour, glory and England, went off to war to make the world safe for democracy. They were slaughtered in stupid battles planned by stupid generals. Those who survived were shocked, embittered and disillusioned by their war experiences, and saw that their real enemies were not the Germans, but the old men at home who had lied to them. They rejected the values of the society that had sent them to war, and in doing so separated their own generation from the past, and from their cultural inheritance. End quote. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed what was hopefully a unique take on 1916, and that I didn't miss too much. Don't hold me to it, but the idea is that Sean and I can fill in the gaps with a talk episode at some point down the line. Until that time comes, though, please remember to be fit, and I hope you'll join me next time for 1917. I hope my cold didn't bother you too much, because my name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.